All right, we're putting the finishing touches today on our Not Today Satan series. We've spent the last three weeks digging into this idea of, of taking responsibility for our lives, of rejecting complacency, mediocrity, lukewarmness, and temptation, and, and saying, man, we're going to play some offense. We're not just going to wait for the enemy to come to us and attack us, but we're actually going to take the battle to him. Um, I'm so proud of the way you guys have responded to this. Uh, we've kicked off every week with our Not Today Satan declaration, and so I know I just had you stand up and sit down. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand up again in just a second, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I'm going to have you stand up again at communion at the end. So we're getting some exercise today at City Church. We're going to work on your core because uh, we're going to be up and down a bit. So if you would, go ahead and stand back up with me for just a minute. We won't do this to you too often. Um, but we're going to declare this over our lives. You go ahead and put that on the screen. Um, as a statement of faith, that man, we are going to engage the battle all around us. Say this with me. Say, today I choose to exercise my faith and engage the Holy Spirit. Today I reject temptation, complacency, mediocrity, and lukewarmness and I rebuke their power in my life. With God's strength, today I will play offense. Next, Today I will open my Bible to build my faith, open my mouth to declare God's goodness, and open my eyes to the opportunities to make a difference that God sets before me. Not today, Satan. So what we've done throughout the series is we've prayed right after that declaration. But as we wrap this up today, I don't want to just pray over you. I'm going to invite you to pray over the person next to you, the person on either side of you. That, man, that, that as we finish this series today, that we would activate our faith, that we would engage the Holy Spirit, and that God would speak to that person in this area. Would you, would you join me in praying for those next to you? Father God, we come before you right now. God, we thank you that you're doing something. God, we thank you that you are a God who is active. God, you are a God who, who does not determine or, or want us to be defeated, but you sent Jesus to walk in victory and to be victory for us. So God, today we speak the victory of Jesus over your people. God, we speak the, the value of being an overcomer, that we would overcome temptation, God, that we would overcome sin, that we would walk in the victory you've ordained for us to have. God, we pray for the person on our right and the person on our left. God, we thank you for them. We thank you that we get to do life with them. God, that you are using them to be a light and example and a glory for you. And God, we pray that you would use today's message to, to activate something in each of us. God, as we begin today to talk about repentance. God, if there's anything in us that needs to be repented of, that needs to be dealt with, we pray today would be the day that we deal with it. Today would be the day we say, not today, Satan. I'm not holding on to this. I'm not cherishing this thing that doesn't look like Jesus, but we would give it to you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen, amen. You can grab a seat, just don't get too comfortable. Uh, we'll be back up in just a minute. No, it'll be a few minutes. What I want to do today, as we finish this series, is I want to talk to you about this idea of repentance. When I originally put this series together, my plan was to talk about the practical side of resisting temptation last week and this week, but I really felt like last week it, it connected and that we were able to get the, the vast majority of the material out that we really wanted to get out on resisting temptation. So if you weren't here last week, please, please, please go back, check out the podcast, the live stream, find it uh, on our website, on iTunes, on our Facebook page, and you can get any of those places. Uh, I, I believe it'll be a great resource to you, a great tool for you in resisting temptation. Um, but I felt like 
there was one thing that we really didn't cover in depth. We've kind of talked about this idea of repentance throughout the whole series, but we haven't really dove into it. We haven't really talked about what it truly means to repent or what happens when we repent. So I want to do that today. So I want to preface the message with a couple of basics about repentance. And then what we'll do is we're going to get into five things that repentance does for us. Um, So the basics about repentance are repentance is more than just confessing. It's even more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is choosing to turn from my sin. It's recognizing there's something in me that doesn't need to be there uh, and saying, okay, I'm not going to continue in this direction. I'm going to turn away from my sin. There's this 180-degree value to repentance. The danger sometimes is that we get into a habit of confessing, but we still kind of in the back of our heart or the back of our mind, we're like, yeah, I'm going to do this again, right? I'm leaving here, and I'm going to go right back to this thing, this habit, this addiction, this, this thing that I enjoy. Yeah, I know it's wrong, so I'll confess it, but I'm really going to kind of hold on to it. There's no value in that. That's not repentance. Repentance is when we turn from something, we reject something in us that we know doesn't look like Jesus. So that's the kind of harsh reality side of repentance. Here's the good news about repentance. Repentance is a word picture. It's a combination of two words, right? It's this root for re, which means to return, to restore, to, for something to happen again, right? And then the root for pence, it's where we get the word penthouse. Penthouse is more than a dirty magazine. It is the room in a hotel or an apartment that's the most expensive. If you go to the beach this summer and you request the penthouse suite, you better have some money with you when you get down there. Uh, or you're going to be coming back with some debt, right? The, the penthouse is the nicest place. It's the place the rich people stay, the important people stay. It's the place where they roll out the red carpet for a celebrity who comes in. It's, it's the ultimate place to be. So what happens when you repent is you are restored to the highest level. See, when I was young, I I would get into sin, and it would be something that maybe I had struggled with for a while, and I had this picture of God that that I had to pay this penance. I had to go like three months and read my Bible every day to prove to God that I was serious about repenting this time. I don't know if anybody else has ever kind of had that mentality. And, and, and I had this idea that I had to earn my way back to where I was. But if you look at the story of the prodigal son, repentance is, is illustrated so beautifully. The prodigal son sins greatly, right? He, he violates and hurts his father in a million ways. And he finally comes to his senses and decides, I'm going to go back home. But what does he think he's going home as? As a servant, right? He thinks he's coming back to the hotel at the lowest level. You see where I'm going? Right, he's coming back into relationship with God, with the Father, at the lowest level. And a lot of times that's what we think. That man, we, we repent, we blew it, we messed up, maybe spectacularly. And well, I'm gonna get my foot in the door and then I'm gonna start working my way back up through my spiritual levels, through my religious levels. But what does the Father do? The Father sees him a long ways off and he runs to meet him, he throws his arms around him, he gives him the, the signet ring, he gives him the nice robe, he kills the fattened calf, he throws the party for him. He restores him to sonship immediately, which is the highest level. That's repentance. When you truly repent, what you're doing is you're turning from your sin, but what God's doing is he's putting you right back at the highest level spiritually. How many of you want to be at your highest level in your relationship with God? All of us, right? 
What's the key to being at the highest level? It's not the person who prays the most. It's not the person who worships the best. It's not the person who gives the most money. All of those things are important, right? But the person who is at the highest level in their relationship with God is the one who understands how to repent. It's the one who recognizes when there's sin in my life, I'm turning from that. I'm turning back to the Father. I'm going to him with all that I have. And when the Father sees that, he's restoring you to the highest level. Now, once you're restored to the highest level, now you're empowered as a son, as a daughter, to pray, to worship, to give, to serve, to do all of those things, right? But you're not doing those things to earn a place with God. You're doing those things because as, as, as a response to the fact that God has given you that place. As your child, as your son, as your daughter, I want to bring glory to you. I'm not trying to earn your favor or a place with you. I hope that that makes sense. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at three different passages, two from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament, that, that teach us about repentance before we get to communion at the end. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be flipping around a little bit today. We're going to start in James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you're familiar with James, James was the brother of Jesus, and he is a little bit in your face, uh, J- James is, is very direct, very bold. He's somebody who, who doesn't have time for playing around with foolishness. He's going to tell you how it is directly. Most of us have like a family member like this, right? Have we got that one family? They don't know how to be subtle. They, they don't know how to like te- say something in a way that's encouraging and uplifting. It's just going to be all up in your Kool-Aid. That's what James does. Uh, and so we'll start verse 4 in a, in a most encouraging place. He says this, talking to the church of God, he says, You adulterous people. Uh, so it starts out strong. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? So speaking to a generation of Christians that are trying to straddle this line. They got one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus, which sounds a whole lot like modern Christianity in America. And he says, if you're going to choose friendship with the world, you're choosing to be enemies with God. God doesn't leave the opportunity for us to have both. It doesn't mean we don't love the world. It doesn't mean that we're not a blessing to people. Like, that's, that's not what he's saying. He, when he says the world, he doesn't mean people. He means the sinfulness, the way that the world works. That if you choose that you want to have what the world has, you're choosing to be enemies with God. He says, therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Man, that he looks at the spirit in us and, and he wants that to be all that we desire. He wants that to be enough for us. It says, but he gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Old translation says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know which I like better. He shows favor to the humble, or he gives grace to the humble. I'm like, sign me up for both. I'll take both translations, right? Um, What a statement. That if we're prideful, God's going to be against us. But if we walk in humility, God is going to be for us. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourself is not a phrase that we really like not something that hits our flesh and we're like yes I'm going to submit myself to God but a, a great challenge a great statement of what it means to be a Christian that we would be submitted to God submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee from you not today Satan right 
Not today. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Then he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hope. I skipped it. Sorry. Verse 8. He says, come near to God and God will come near to you. This famous statement, right? We use it all the time in worship. We use it in all kinds of contexts. It's very true. But we skip the second half of the verse most of the time. And I've been guilty of this myself. He says, come near to God and God will come near to you. And then he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So, so he connects our repentance with our movement to God. He says, if you'll just take a step towards God, God's coming running for you. Again, prodigal son, right? Prodigal son moves towards God. God runs towards him. That's the father that we serve, but it's repentance that moves God's heart. When we're washing our hands, he's not literally saying wash your hands because, like, you're going to get the coronavirus, right? He's not saying wash your hands because you're going to spread something. Oh, that's probably wise right now. we got, like, half of our church out sick with the flu and with all kinds of stuff that's going around. So be careful, right? Watch yourselves out there. But he's not saying wash your hands physically. He's speaking metaphorically that, that there's something that we're touching, that we're grasping that isn't clean, that isn't like Jesus, and we got to let go of that thing, and we got to wash our hands of it. And then he says, you got to purify your heart. See, what he's saying is that you can do these things before God has to. That the ball is in our courts as believers, that we can get ourselves right. Not, not originally, only Jesus can save you. But once you've been saved and the Holy Spirit lives in you, now you have the ability to say, you know what, I got this. I'm, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to get it right. That's why you don't have to wait till next Sunday to get right with God. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys know that, but you can actually confess and deal with Jesus on your own. At your house, in your car, wherever you're at. In fact, you should. Man, you don't have to wait until there's a, a convicting message till the next time we do communion for you to get right with God again. Man, you should be able to say, okay, there's some, I, st- I missed you on that, God. Man, I did not keep my finger to myself driving down the road today. God, forgive me. I'm sorry. That, that, that should have stayed with me, right? Like, we should be able to, to look at ourselves and deal with whatever doesn't look like Jesus. It's called the priesthood of the believer. It's a New Testament doctrine that you don't have to have somebody else go to God for you. You don't have to come to me and say, hey, pastor, can you pray for me? I've been dealing with this sin. I've been dealing with this issue. Now, that doesn't mean I can't pray for you. It doesn't mean that there, there's no power in that. The Bible says there's something when we pray in agreement, man, that God shows up to a greater degree. So it's powerful for us to pray together, but you don't need me. You've got the ability to go to God for yourself. If you're a Christian, the spirit of God lives in you. You don't need a, a, a small group leader, a worship leader, a spiritual mentor, right? Like those things are important. We need each other, but you have access to the throne room of God just being you. That's a powerful thing. So James says, man, go get this stuff right with God on your own. Verse 9, he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. That's an encouraging message, isn't it? Signed up for that. Hallelujah. We're going to grieve, mourn, and wail at City Church 2020. Amen. See, this is the response when we realize how serious sin is. What happens? We're grieved when we realize this is what caused Jesus to die. That we're tolerating stuff. We're bringing stuff in our life that God saw as so serious that he allowed his only son to take nails in his wrists and thorns in his brow and, and, and whips in his back because my sin is that serious. When we come to grips with that, when we realize that the response, again, this is not a letter to the world. This is not a letter to the lost. This is a letter to the church. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Now, that's not the default, 
right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not grieving, mourning, and wailing. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy and peace. So we're not saying this is where we need to be normally. What he's saying is when you're in sin and you realize it and the Spirit of God convicts you, that should bother you that you allowed that sin into your life. That that this should not just be just a quick, oh, no big deal, and we move on. God, forgive me that I've allowed this, that I've tolerated this, that I've partaken of something that doesn't look like you. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He closes it with this. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Such a beautiful picture that, that the lower I go, the higher God takes me. Why is it that we're able to, to be restored to the highest level? Because when God recognizes humility, he says, I will lift you up. I will bring you back to the top. And so in God's economy, in God's, the, the way that God has designed things, so many things are upside down. We think, i got to force my way to the top. i got to show everybody how great I am. I need to make sure that I demonstrate this. And God says, no, I just want you to humble yourself. I want you to repent. I want you to grieve, mourn, and wail. I want you to realize that this isn't okay, that we're not going to tolerate this. And when you do, I'm stepping in. I'm going to move, and I'm restoring you to the highest level. That's what repentance does. So if you're taking notes today, and I hope that you are, five things that repentance does for me. I phrased this in the first person so you can preach this to yourself, so you can break it out, break your notes out, look over it, and speak it over your own life. But we're going to develop the habit of a repenter and five things that repentance does for me. The first one is this. Repentance invites God into my situation. Repentance invites God into my situation. James 4, 8 said, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Did you ever wondered where God was in the midst of your situation? I have. Sometimes God's there and we just don't see him, right? We talked about in December that God's with us in the valley. He's with us in the wilderness. He's with us in the storm. Braden, a couple weeks ago, talked about how he's with us in the fire last week, I think, right? He's with us in in the bad situations of life, but, but sometimes he's not in our situation to the degree that we want him to be because he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Because he's waiting for us to deal with something, that he's convicting us, he's speaking to us, he's let us know, hey, this isn't okay, and he's waiting for us to make that move. Man, deal with that, give that to me, and as soon as you give it to me, I'm going to take over. As soon as you give it to me, I'm going to show myself strong. As soon as you give it to me, you're going to see who I am and feel my presence and my peace, but I can't do it until you give it to me. He says, draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you in the context of repentance. So repentance invites God into my situation. The, the second thing that we see here in James is that repentance humbles me. It humbles me. Repentance humbles me. Verse 10 said, humble yourselves then before the Lord and he will lift you up. So repentance is the recognition that God, I, I didn't have it together. God, I missed it. God, I'm sorry. God, would you forgive me? First service, I preached Five-point message, I skipped point five. I had to get up here at the end of service and repent for skipping the last point. Not fun to repent, right? Like, we don't like when we miss something. Like, it's not fun to walk in that humility. But the reality is God's attracted to humility. God shows up in the midst of humility. And so repentance humbles me, and humility invites God. Man, it's so important that I would walk in humility. We're, We're so often prideful, even as Christians. Man, we think that, man, maybe it's our culture or maybe it's the lost, but Christians walk in so much pride. Man, especially looking towards the world, 
right? The Bible says the judgment starts in the house of God. We don't need to look down on the world. We need to look into our own hearts. That's where we need to start. That's what we need to get fixed. And then God's going to empower us to reach that world with his glory. So he opposes the proud. He gives grace. It shows favor to the humble. Told you we were going to flip around a little bit. Turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 1. So James is known as the guy who's in your face and very tough. John's known as the, the apostle of love. Uh, John's the guy who talks about how God is love. We're turning to 1 John. It might sound like, hey, it's going to be soft, but nope, not this part. Uh, this part's very, very much like something we would read in James. But he says this in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, this is written not to the world, but to the church. If we claim to be without sin, we are deceiving ourselves. I think self-deceit is one of the enemy's greatest tools in our generation. We're so good at deceiving ourselves. We're so good at convincing ourselves that we've got it together. So good at convincing ourselves, oh, man, I've got that thing under control. I can quit anytime I want to, right? We're so good at lying to ourselves, And the enemy is so great at helping us along in that process. He says, if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or to purify us from all unrighteousness. Everybody say all. When we confess, when we give it to God, when we turn from it, he's going to take it all from us. And that's huge. He, he, he's not going to, man, halfway wash us up, and now, you know what, you got to take care of the rest. Man, you give it to me, I'm taking all of it. I'm washing all of it. It's one of my favorite, absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture. But look what it says in verse 10. He, re, he repeats himself from verse 8 and just in different words. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So first of all, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. But secondly, if we claim to be without sin, we're making God out to be a liar and what he said about us. So what's the reality? The reality is we all got some sin, right? We all got some junk. We all got some stuff in me that doesn't look like Jesus. It's not fun to say. It's not something that we get excited to deal with. But it is the reality as believers, as the saints of God, as people who have been given his Holy Spirit, we all still fall short. And it's okay if we build the habit of repentance, we build the habit of looking at our heart and checking ourselves and realizing I need to turn from that stuff that doesn't look like Jesus and give it to him and allow him to restore me to the highest level. So two things from 1 John that repentance does. First of all, repentance destroys self-deception. Repentance destroys self-deception. That, that we can't have that deception of ourselves because you can't repent without saying, hey, I've got some sin, Right? You're acknowledging your sin, which allows us to penetrate through that, that lie that the enemy wants to to get us caught in of self-deception. So repentance destroys self-deception. Secondly, from 1 John 1, 9, we see that repentance cleanses me. It purifies me. Do you remember when you first came to Jesus? I know some of us may not. Like, I don't know when I first came to Jesus. I've told you this before, but first time I prayed, I was two. Second time I prayed, I was four. Third time I prayed, I was eight. I don't know which one took. Somewhere along the line, I got saved, right? Like, at some point, I came to Jesus. I'm not sure which one was the one. Um, So I don't have that moment, but many of you do. Many of you remember, man, at this point in life, 
I gave my life to Jesus and, and what it felt like, the joy that filled your heart, man, was you knew you stood right before God, not because of anything you did, but because of what he did. There's something joyful about salvation. In fact, David says in repentance, he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That's what repentance is doing is, man, coming to that point where we're not just clean before God, but we feel it. Man, that, that, that we have that cleansing, man. It's like, man, when you take a, you got, went out and had a, a hard day and you got nasty and, man, you get in the shower, man, there's just something beautiful about a good shower, right? You know what I mean? When you, you just feel like, man, you feel alive. Man, now I can talk to some of you before that. You're like paranoid. You stink. You don't want to be around anybody. Like, don't smell me. Don't get near me. But, man, you, when you go through the shower, you know you smell good, right? You know you're clean. You know that, hey, you can, you can do whatever, man. That's what it is to come to so repentance to Jesus, man, I'm just getting cleaned up. Man, I don't want to stink before you, God. I want to stand before you right. I want to be a pleasing aroma. That's what it does. Repentance cleanses me. The last section I want you to see in Psalm chapter 66. David, the amazing psalmist who just understood repentance on a level that, that many of us never do. I think the reason why David is called a man after God's own heart is because he knew how to repent. Because he knew how to fail. He was a massive failure on, on our terms. If we were to list the things that he did, we would never say that's a guy who's after God's heart. But God says, this is one after my heart. And I think the key was David knew how to repent. He knew how to be restored. And so in a, the, this Psalm of repentance, Psalm 66, he says this. He says, come in here, verse 16, all who you who fear God, let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. And then verse 18, I, when I was interning in Oklahoma at a youth ministry, I had to memorize this verse. It was one that we, were, uh, we learned in, in altar ministry that we would pray with students and kind of walk them through different things. And this was a repentance verse. Man, if a student was saved already, but, but they were rededicating, they were trying to get right with God. This was a verse that we always shared with them. And it says this in the NIV. It says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In other words, there's this biblical principle that not just not confessing sin, but actually having sin that we cherish. So in other words, having that thing that we're like, yeah, I'm going back to this. Yeah, I know this isn't supposed to be in my life, but this is just how I, who I am. God knows. God understands me. He knows my heart, right? Well, he's, he does know your heart. And he says if you cherish it in your heart, there's a chance he's not hearing your prayers. Now, I don't believe that that means that God literally doesn't hear you. What I believe is this, is that unconfessed sin and cherished sin, sin that we regard in our heart, places a wall between us and God. And have you ever felt like, man, that thing that you did prevents you? Man, I can't come in and enter into worship because I know what I did last night. I can't lift God's voice. I can't tell somebody about Jesus. What a hypocrite I would be if I tried to tell somebody about Jesus and I just did this. See, this is the tool of the enemy, that he uses your sin from yesterday to prevent you from walking in God's will today. Right? And, and so when he can pin you down, it's called condemnation. When he can pin condemnation on you, he's building a wall between you and God where, man, you don't even feel like your prayers are being heard. You don't feel like, like God has a chance to know what's going on in your life. And so if God doesn't hear your prayer, what are you going to do? I'm just not going to pray. Right? And, and so he's building these layers trying to prevent you from actually getting what you need, which is repentance, 
and getting back to God's presence. So the fifth thing that repentance does for me, number five, repentance reopens God's ears to my prayers. Repentance reopens God's ears to my prayers, number five. That's the point that first service did not get, but y'all got to have access to. You're welcome. Glad that I had a run through so I could fail for them so I could get it right for y'all, right? Uh, repentance does these things for us. And so it's important to understand that what happens when we repent, the worship team's coming down, we're going to partake of communion in just a minute. Communion is this thing that Jesus instituted for us, as you probably know, the night before he died for our sins. He's with his disciples, his best friends on planet earth, his closest confidants. And he shares with them this, this ordinance that's going to be passed down that we're doing 2,000 years later. That's done all over the world in a million different ways with different kinds of bread and different kind of drink. And they drank wine and we're drinking grape juice. So sorry uh, if, you're, if you really were excited for the wine today. Don't get so excited. Uh, but man, this thing is so beautiful. It's a picture of who Jesus is. It's a picture of what he wants for us, of what he has done for us and provided for us. And so I know most of you know what it is, but I don't want to take the chance that we just go through the motions today. One of the reasons why we don't do communion all the time, there's churches that I had somebody ask me just last week, there, there's some new people coming into our church and they've uh, come out of a church where they did communion every Sunday. And they were like, they've been here like four times. They're like, do y'all ever take communion? I said, actually, we're taking it this Sunday. I just met with my worship leader about it. Um, but one of the reasons why we don't take it every Sunday is because when we do it, we're gonna take some time to do it. Um, that's not to say anybody who does it every Sunday is doing it wrong. But, but I just, I want to make sure we don't ever just do this blindly. We don't ever just check off the box and say we did communion. I want to make sure that we take full advantage of the power of what this is. And so in speaking on repentance, I knew that we had to take some time to partake of communion. So what I want to do today is I want to read to you the entirety of the passage on communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We usually share a piece of this passage and, and really just the, the nuts and bolts of it. But I want to make sure that you have the whole context of what the Apostle Paul is saying because I think it's important. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. If you're familiar with the church in Corinth, it was the worst. It's like the worst church in the New Testament. These guys got it wrong on every level. Sexually, they got it wrong. Spiritually, they got it wrong. They got it wrong all over the place. And so Paul writes his letter to the church in Corinth as a letter of correction. Hey, I know this about you. I've heard this about you. I've seen this in you. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Let's get it right. So now he gets to communion. They can't even do communion right. How sad is that, right? He's like, no, you're missing it. This isn't okay. And so he's going to address some things in the way that they're doing communion. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. You ever known some Christians that did more harm than good? God forbid that that phrase could ever be applied to us. God forbid that we would ever misrepresent our Savior in such a way that we'd be better that we didn't even gather. That it'd be better that we didn't even give our life to him 
so that we didn't distract someone or point someone in the wrong direction. That's why it's so important the way that we live and the way that we do things. He says, your meetings do more harm than good. He said, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So he's been dealing with this. It's kind of a theme throughout the, the letter. But basically what's happening is there's different Corinthian factions that are trying to prove they're the best Christians. We got it, we got it the best. And God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We're, we're not competing with anybody else in this room. By the way, we're not competing with any other church, by the way, either. Like other churches are on the same team. Man, we are for them, and they are for us. We're, we're, this is not a competition. This is a family. Man, this, this is a, a kingdom that we've been invited into. And so we're not in competition to prove that we're a better church or that we're better Christians. That's not what this thing is about. He says, so when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's something else. For when you were eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So they were doing it in such a way they were actually partaking of a meal. And some would come in and they would just gorge themselves. Some would actually hit a little too much of the communion wine uh, and, and literally get drunk. And Paul's saying, look, this is not at all what Jesus created. This is not at all the reflection of who he is. What they were doing is they were doing this very casually. They were just kind of showing up. Hey, we got some food. Hey, we got some bread. Hey, we got some drink. Let's just have this. And Paul says, no, this isn't about feeding your physical body this is about reflecting on the body of Christ and what Jesus has done for you he verse 22 he says don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing what shall I say to you shall I praise you certainly not in this matter Paul's not very happy with the church in Corinth and then he goes on to the famous part, the part that we quote every time. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took some bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said this. He said, this is my body, which is, remember, or excuse me, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You realize that when Jesus gave us communion a night before he was about to die, he said, this is for you. I'm about to do this for you. My body's going to be broken for you. I'm going to be whipped so badly that the Bible says you're not even going to be able to recognize that I'm a man. That's how much pain I'm going to go through. Why am I doing it? For you. Because I love you. Because sin is so serious. And the separation from my father, the chasm is so great. And the only way we can cross it, the only way we can bridge that gap is for a perfect sacrifice. A man who lived 33 years without sinning, the son of God, to die in my place and in yours. As he gets ready to go to the cross, he looks at his followers and he says, this is for you. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? And then he says this, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why did he have to tell them to remember? Because they're human and they're going to forget. Because so often we come to Jesus and we get saved and then we go back to our daily life and we worry about that salvation stuff again next Sunday. We worry about that salvation stuff again next time that we need him. And Jesus says, I'm going to do all this for you. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to take thorns in my skull. I'm going to take nails in my wrist, nine inch long nails. 
in my wrists and in my feet. I'm going to take all of that for you because I love you, because you're worth it, because my father wants a relationship with you and I'm submitted to him. I'm going to do all that, but please don't you dare forget what I've done. Communion calls us back to remembrance. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're not under the old covenant anymore. We don't have to sacrifice animals to cover every sin and hope that somehow we've done enough to be right with God. These perfect sacrifices come, and his blood still has the power to wash away every sin. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He says, do this remembrance of me. And then he says this, he said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, what are you doing? You declare the Lord's death until he comes again. So there's two components to it. We, the communion causes us to look backwards and to remember what Jesus did. Sorry, Hunter. Right? Communion causes us to, to reflect on what Jesus has done for us and the magnitude of our sin, the significance that because of our sin, he had to die. But it doesn't just cause us to look back. It causes us to look forward. We're declaring the Lord's death, but we're also declaring he's coming back. He's not dead anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you and for me. His blood is powerful enough to cover my sin, and he's coming back for us. And communion declares all of that. It doesn't just look backwards, it looks forwards as well. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. What's an unworthy manner? He doesn't exactly say. The inference that I get is this, is that we come to communion without repenting, without dealing with our sin, as we treat casual the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, that we're doing it unworthily. See, there's nothing that I can do to make myself worthy or you can do to make yourself worthy. All of us are unworthy. But he says an unworthy manner. So it's not about whether I'm worthy or whether I'm not. It's about the way I'm treating communion. And the reason why I believe it has to do with repentance is the context. If you go to the next verse, he says this. He says, everyone, everybody say, that's me. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink for the cup. What does it mean to examine myself? Look in the mirror, right? Hopefully you looked in the mirror before you left the house today. Make sure you didn't have that booger hanging out. Make sure that hair wasn't out of place, right? Make sure your pants were zipped up or whatever. Like it's, it's good to look in the mirror. Aren't you glad we have mirrors? <laughs> Teresa, real glad. Everyone should examine themselves, should look inside. Is there something out of whack? Is there some spiritual spinach in my teeth? Is there something there that doesn't belong, that doesn't look like Jesus? And if it is, deal with it. Get rid of it, man. If you need to run a comb through it, run a comb through it. If you need to, man, go get a tissue, go get a tissue. You need a toothpick, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, just deal with it. Examine yourself and deal with it. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What does that mean? What, what, what happened, man? I took this casually before and I didn't get right with God. And what, what it, it doesn't say, and I don't want to get caught up in worrying about what it is. Here's my takeaway from it. Let's just not do it. 
right? I don't know what it means to drink and eat judgment on myself, but I'd rather not experience it. So let's just make sure before we do this that we're right, that we've examined ourselves and we've dealt with it. Verse 30, he says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, God's power is not moving in the Corinthian church the way God has ordained for his power to move, to heal and to move in people's lives simply because they're not dealing with sin. That their unconfessed sin is preventing God from showing up. Can we define our generation in a better way than that? Our tolerance of sin, our acceptance of sin, our embrace of sin, our cherishing and regarding of sin is preventing God from moving the way that he's ordained to move. So what does that mean we got to do? It means we got to deal with it. We got to address it. We got to examine ourselves and give it to him, verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So let's be discerning. Nevertheless, verse 32, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally, we will not be finally condemned with the world. Hebrews puts it this way. It says that God disciplines those he loves, right? God's discipline is not a punishment. It's not he's out to hurt you or out to man, get revenge on you. God's discipline is him saying, I want to train you to be better. I want to train you to be more like Jesus so that this stuff is not affecting you, it's not harming you, it's not preventing you from my best in your life. Here's what I believe. I believe you wouldn't be here if you didn't want God's best in your life. Why, why even bother? Why, why get up when there's so many other things you could do on a Sunday morning? There's so many other places you could be. You could be catching up on your rest or catching up on your housework or man, whatever the other thing may be. But you're here. Why? Because you want God's best. So just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come down and grab the elements of communion. And as you return to your seats, I want us to walk out 1 Corinthians 11. I want us to examine ourselves. Maybe God's already put his finger on something that's in you that, man, you knew it when you came in today. I'm coming in with this unconfessed sin and it's all over you. Man, you just need to deal with that. And it's clear and obvious. Maybe you're a little further along in your spiritual maturity. And man, you're not really sure. Is there anything there? It's where you ask him. Holy Spirit, show me. Is there something I need to deal with? Is there something I need to give to you today? Maybe the answer is going to be no, man. Maybe you dealt with it this morning or last night or last week and you're in a good place. And if that's you, I want you to, to celebrate. I want you to worship God that he's moving in your life and got you at a place where you don't have to repent. But if you are in a place where you need to repent, which is probably most of us, let's deal with it. Grieve, mourn, wail recognize the power and the impact of your sin and invite God in to cleanse it to restore you to the highest level here's what we're gonna do we're gonna have the first two seated rows if you'd stand up and come forward there's a gluten-free option on the back end uh, we have uh, bread without yeast unleavened bread so go ahead and grab the bread in a cup and return to your seat and if you would just stay standing we're gonna be in an attitude of prayer and worship I'm gonna have the worship team lead us in a song here in just a minute if the next two rows would get up after they get back, etc., until everybody has been served. If you guys would, go ahead and take us in.
is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at His right in first service uh, so thankfully I don't think I've sinned since first service I'm good uh, so I'm up here praying for you guys first service I prayed for me um, so if you're in a good place man be empowered to to intercede for others for those that you love that that God would voice would speak to them that his spirit would move on them um, go ahead team
Jesus knew what he was about to experience. He knew the physical pain he was about to endure. He knew the spiritual pain he was going to receive as he bore the weight of the sin of the world as his father actually had to turn his back away from him. He knew what he was about to endure and as he's about to do all of this, he says, I'm doing it for you. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, as he was getting ready to, to do this, he, he had to keep his eyes on the prize. How else would he have done it? He saw your face. He knew you needed his salvation. He said, I'm going to let my body be broken for you. What an amazing thing. And then he asked us to remember. So church, can we honor the request of Jesus today? Can we honor the request of the one who died for us and simply remember what he endured, what he went through, so that we don't have to, so that we can be free, so that we can walk in grace, so that we can be washed clean and cleansed from our sin. He did all of that for you and for me. Would you take the bread in your right hand and lift it up as we pray? Jesus, we thank you for the body that you allowed to be broken. Jesus, I'll never understand it why the perfect one would love me enough knowing every time I would fail and every time I would promise you something and not live up to it yet you still chose to die in my place so God I can never repay you for your sacrifice but I can't honor your request to remember and so today we do that God, we thank you for your cleansing power. We thank you that you've washed us clean as we've examined ourselves and repented. And today, God, we ask that you would allow this to take root. God, remind us, not just as we take communion, but through our day, through our week, through our life, what it means to be yours, what it means to be bought by the blood of Jesus, the high, high price that was paid for our sin, that we could be made right. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you that you were broken so we could be well and we receive it today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take the bread. This is after they finished supper. He took the cup. He said in the same way, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old ways don't count anymore. We don't have to go through all these spiritual hoops and try to earn our way up. That's what the Old Testament was. He said, now I've come and I've given you your rightful place. I've restored you. See, what we often do when we start with the story of salvation is we start with we're all sinners, right? For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, which is true, but that's not where the story begins. The story begins in Genesis when we're created in the image of God. See, he created us in his image to reflect him. We fell and we sinned and he had to come in and redeem us. He had to restore us. But that's what's happened because of Jesus. We've been restored to our rightful place. But only when we repent. So this thing right here represents the blood of Jesus that washes us clean, washes away all our stuff, all our junk, all our sin, all our shame, all our failure, all our condemnation. Every weakness, it's all washed away by the blood of Jesus. Can we thank him for his blood? Would you take the cup in your right hand and offer it up as we pray? Father God, we thank you right now for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that it has not lost its power. 
we thank you that this blood is greater than every sin in this room than every addiction in this room every bondage in this room every lie every self-deception that this blood is powerful enough to wash it all away and then some and so god right now we we submit ourselves again to the blood of christ that we would be washed afresh and new that we'd be purified from all unrighteousness that we would reflect you in a world that is hurting and broken and we'd be your representatives god we thank you for the new covenant and the new that you've done the new blood of jesus god that you've given us we thank you for it in jesus name amen take the blood the cup